All right, Boca Podcast listeners, we are back for another brand new episode with a brand new guest. Amanda Stevens is here. Thank you for hanging out with me today, Amanda. Thank you for having me. And uh, as everybody, um, well, I hope you have at least an idea. If you're listening to the Boca Podcast, we are about helping photographers build sustainable businesses. Now, a lot of the conversation centers around workflow because of that, but we also occasionally get to dig into the technical side of photography. Amanda is going to help us with kind of an intro to off-camera flash today. And uh, we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But before we do, um, I want to touch on some of these questions that I normally ask our guests here on the show, Amanda. Um, first of all, just to give a little bit of context to our listeners, whereabouts are you currently based? I am mainly based in New York City. Okay. And uh, I, I know that you mentioned to me, we were even talking about this before we started recording, that you photograph at the Empire State Building. And we'll give a little bit of context to that in just a little bit. But in that New York market, uh, first of all, customers, customer experience, how have you found most effective in your experience as a photography business owner, creating a better customer experience, um, creating a one of those experiences that your customers is going to go home and tell their friends, their family about, because they were just like, oh my word, Amanda was amazing. What What is that thing that you're doing to create <laughs> that kind of experience for them? I have a relatively unique background where I grew up in a retail setting. Okay. Um, my mother has a children's toy store. So I started working as soon as I could talk to people <laughs> for the most part. Really? Okay. So I, yeah. So I, I grew up very customer service trained and based. So I, and then I worked for Apple retail for about a year and a half. Um, and our training was solely customer service and nothing on products. So just learning from that, uh, and just keeping it a positive experience. Well, so let's make it practical though. I mean, it's interesting. Sure. You mentioned that, that Apple it's, you said it's nothing about products. It's all about customer experience, despite the fact that Apple yeah. is ultimately selling a variety of products, right? Well, basically they figure you're going to be around these products 20 to 40 hours a week. Yeah. You're going to learn them regardless. So we'd rather, you know, how to talk to people and talk to customers and problem solve than technical aspects. Which makes a lot of sense. So what does that actually look like tangibly, though? Like what, what kind of feedback or advice would they give you saying, hey, you're about to have this a conversation with this customer. I want you to do this, this and this, or this is a kind of experience that I want you to create, or this is the, the mood, the mentality that I want you to, to exude as you're going into that conversation. What did it sound like? So the number one thing was don't make anything up. <laughs> if you don't know, it's fine, but just don't make anything up. Really? Um, and okay. The, yeah. The phrasing that they wanted us to use was, I don't know, let's find out. So making it a team effort on on learning whatever the answer to question to the customer or client. That's question really was. cool. Okay. Yeah. And did they explain the thought process behind that? It's been 10 years, but I think I think Apple based all of its customer service training off of the Waldorf company. Interesting. If I remember correctly. Okay. Um, so it was just more of, I mean, we nobody on, at Apple is on commission, which was awesome at times. And then when your top sales was terrible. Uh, <laughs> but the cool thing about working, again, I mean, it, it plays into photography as well. But uh, my strong point is obviously photo and editing software and that kind of thing. But we had musicians, we had, you know, we had a scuba diver want to learn how to use their computer, like just people from all walks of life. Um, so I'm obviously not going to know the answers to, you know, Logic Pro or anything on sound. Right. But I wasn't expected to. So I knew I had coworkers that I could fall back on to answer the questions that I, I couldn't. And it was better than making anything up. 
That's great, though. I mean, this is a really interesting perspective. Certainly, I've never gotten an answer like this before on the show. And <laughs> um, I think it's a great reminder. I mean, it seems basic, but I mean, honesty should always yeah. be priority, number one. And there's a certain amount of vulnerability there, which creates, you know, it's the basis of a, of a, a friendship, the beginnings of a friendship, right? When you're well, willing to say- more human, too. Yes. Yeah. That's a great, that's a much better way to put it, actually. That's, that's, <laughs> that's really, really good. And then, uh, as you pointed out, you said, let's figure this out together it becomes yeah. a team effort. And now you're yeah. you're encouraging the notion of community and togetherness, working together, uh, which is also a good reminder and a good lesson uh, when it comes to customer experience. So that's really cool. I really appreciate that perspective. I'm going to keep going, though, because you're yeah. in a busy market in New yeah. York, New York City. I mean, not at the moment, but yeah. <laughs> well, it's fair, fair. Most of the time. Yes. Just to give a good bit of context for anybody that might be listening to this later on. Uh, we are in the middle of, uh, well, COVID-19, COVID coronavirus, and uh, many of us are kind of stuck at home, and uh, we're hoping that this passes over, obviously, as quickly as possible, but that means a lot of businesses are shut down largely, and nonetheless, that is still a big, busy market that you're in, and so yeah. the question that, that, that um, I don't know, it seems quite natural in that context is how do you stand out? amidst those photographers. We talk a lot about brand position here on the podcast. What is your brand position or do you have a brand position there in that busy market? I don't know if I necessarily have a brand position. Anybody with practice can take a great picture. I would like to think my clients keep coming back to me for my personality and the experience that that I deliver as well. I mean, I'm very thankful that I have repeat clients and, and the, the names that I do have. But yeah, I've developed a style which is relatively colorful and just customer service based. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like that is your strength. And by the way, for anybody curious, if you want to see the, the so-called colorful style, and it is, <laughs> um, firethecanon.com is the website, unique URL as well. Uh, but, you know, it, it's interesting. It's just a point of consideration. I just want to put that, put this out there for, for everybody. Um, the, the idea of getting referrals because of a great experience is incredible. In fact, a lot of my business was based as a photographer was based around that very idea, whether it was getting a referral from an existing client or previous client, or it was getting a referral from a coordinator, uh, who we had the wonderful opportunity to work with on an ongoing basis, but they were able to do that because they knew about us. And, and again, just to give context to the idea of a brand position and the significance of it, if somebody lands on your website, Amanda, or anybody that's listening in, and they have two or three or five seconds to know what you stand for and whether or not that fits what they're looking for, then at that point, the referral plays very small role, if any, in, in their decision-making process. And that's where the value of the brand, brand position comes in and why I highlight it so much here. Um, mm -hmm. you're, you're in a lucky position that you've already gotten your business started. You have this momentum. And I think a lot of photographers probably are running on a very similar momentum. So I, I totally get where you're coming from. But for anybody listening in, especially if you're getting your business started or you're like, you know what, I'm not booking enough. If you want to stand out, get the attention of more potential clients, a brand position, a clear and distinct brand position statement is a great place to start. Uh, and by the way, just to define that, it is the unique value proposition your business offers to the market. So just want to throw that in there. I know we talk about it a lot here on the podcast, but it's really important. And, and I've noticed that a lot of photographers don't have one. Again, if, especially if you're new, if you don't have that momentum from referrals going already, a, a great brand position statement will be helpful. But let's keep going. Let's talk about time. Uh, I know we have a lot of it right this minute. But <laughs> what is something, Amanda, that um, you do when you are busy, when you're photographing regularly to create a little bit of space for yourself or the important people in your life? Um, I mentioned earlier, I have a dog. So that 
definitely helps break up my day with yeah. having to take her out for yeah. a walk. Um, and especially when it's nice out, it's a nice escape to just to get and walk around and get out and walk around the neighborhood. Um, but I also go to the gym a lot. Um, I know we're similar there, but I do a lot of classes. So I like doing boxing classes, which help take out some frustrations and, uh, <laughs> and spin just to get like the cardio going. Okay. And do you have, I mean, is that something you do on a daily basis or in the morning, first thing later in the day, what's that, that schedule look like? Uh, I try, uh, I am so not a morning person. Uh, <laughs> so most of the time I find, I, my gym, I'm lucky. My gym is pretty consistent with classes. So they do at least one or two afternoon classes around 12 o'clock. And then they do evening classes, which is, is what I like to do. I like to do the 6.30, 7.30 p.m. classes. So kind of mixing it up a little bit. Um, at, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, for you, do you see the biggest difference if you're just showing up period versus going at a particular time of the day? Because I know for me, like I, I'll do it in the morning, the workout in the morning, and that really helps me kind of kick off the day. It raises the energy levels. Um, and it also minimizes the chance that I, that I don't actually get it done later on in the day. Cause I kind of know my tendency, but for you, is it just a matter of showing up consistently regardless of the time? Yeah. I mean, I've done some 7am spin classes and I find myself just wanting to go back to bed afterwards. <laughs> so, Fair. For me, that's not super productive. Sure. Um, <laughs> I like getting work done throughout. I mean, a lot of, a lot of these shoots that I do are, are midday Monday through Friday, if they're not weddings, if they're corporate, cause I follow either corporate schedules or like evening parties. But for the most part, I'm, I'm working midday and I like, I'm weird. I like shooting broad daylight, which is where flash comes in. But so I like getting, getting it done at the evening, knowing after knowing that I've done work during the day. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. During, during the day. So then you get to Kind of it's off. almost like a reward yeah. that I've finished work and I can now work out and work on myself. Yeah, throw off some steam, have some space, some time for yourself. I think it's great. And and um, you know, I mean the, the time is is I don't know, seemingly insignificant as is, is the time might might be to some. Uh, for others I know, like I mentioned earlier, it kind of gives me a good good kickoff to the day for you, Amanda. Um, it's a nice <laughs> way to close out the day. It's gonna depend on the person. A yeah. lot of it's just about showing up. And, and you figure out what works best and you do it consistently in the end. That's where you get the, the most benefit. And it might seem cliche to talk about, you know, working out and health and doing so consistently. But the reality is, as photography business owners, uh, in many cases anyway, um, probably many of those listening in are sitting much of the day, if not most of the day. And sure. getting up, moving, it's good for not only our, our physical or our bodily health, but our mental health as well. And it can't be stressed enough. We need to make sure that we consistently show up and do that. It also helps minimize for any wedding photographers, the, the wedding hangover. <laughs> so yeah. we'll just put that out there. But um, let's keep going. Outsourcing, delegation. Is this something that you've incorporated into your business? And if so, what does that look like? If not, talk to us about why not. I'm slightly terrible at it. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate uh, the I transparency. <laughs> uh, the only thing that I really hate doing that I've outsourced is album design. Um, but I don't do a ton of albums. Uh, so that's not a huge outsource for me. <laughs> that's fair. So, but just talk to us. And I love, by the way, there's not really a wrong answer here. It, it makes for, for great conversation either way. Talk to us about why you have apprehension about outsourcing, about delegating. Why have you held on to most of that? I'm not diagnosed OCD, but I'm pretty OCD about certain aspects. Okay. And I know somebody could probably match what I'm doing. It's just a control thing. Uh, uh -huh. I think over my work and my name on what I'm putting out. Sure. The other thing is 
sometimes I don't have time to outsource. Like with the the Empire State Building, their turnaround time is an hour or less, ideally. Uh, so that I do pretty much on site. I jump into like a Dunkin' Donuts or whatever's around that has decent Wi-Fi with my laptop and just knock it out right after the shoot. Well, and you know what? You mentioned the Empire State Building. So let's just give a little bit more context to our listeners to talk to us. Just sum up briefly the type of photography or photographic services that you offer so that our listeners understand what you're referencing. For just the Empire State Building or? Um, let's go ahead and mention all of the above because I know you're not just there. Oh, geez. No, yeah. Um, I'm super varied. Um, for the Empire State Building, it is media, like celebrity and uh, athlete photo ops. So when, when anybody comes to the building um, on a press tour or anything like that, uh, I cover it for the building itself okay. um, for them to use for PR and whatever. Yeah, you um, mentioned you photographed Mariah Carey too, didn't you? I did. Yeah. This past December. That's pretty cool. It was intense, <laughs> but it was cool. <laughs> uh, and she was on time, uh, which was nice. Uh, but yeah, and then I also, my other big client is the New York Jets for okay. the NFL. Um, I focus there on activation, so branding, and then also the flight crew, which are the cheerleaders. Very cool. Okay, so is that where you're spending those two uh, venues, if you will, are where you're spending the majority of your time as a photographer? Yeah, for the most part, yep. Very cool. Okay, and of course, we're going to give further context to that when we talk about lighting here in just a little bit. But when you when you talked about the Empire State Building, that that at least gives our listeners a little bit of context to what you're referencing there. Um, and, and I have to say, by the way, I mean, despite your apprehension about outsourcing or, or delegating your editing or anything <laughs> else, uh, your your work is quite beautiful. It's quite vibrant. For anybody Thank that's you. curious to take a look, if you go to Instagram, just fire the cannon, just like it sounds. Um, yeah, cannon spelled like the camera, not uh, the weapon. By the way, yeah, C-A-N-O-N, <laughs> correct. Um, you'll be able to see uh, this work. And it's it's widely varied and um, extremely vibrant, really, really lovely. Um, I'm just kind of scrolling through here and the colors just jump off the page. But yeah, definitely (laughs) check that out. Of course, we'll put these in the show notes, the website and Instagram in the show notes. Um, But talk to me about inspiration, education, and and to kind of break the fourth wall. uh, I was talking with Amanda about this before we started. Amanda, you said that you're not so much into the books and the podcasts. You actually found a lot of inspiration in a particular Facebook group. Can you talk about that? Yeah, a couple of Facebook groups. So I'm in New York City. There's there's localized groups, but then I also with Flash uh, use a lot of the Magmod products. Okay. So Magmod has a specific group for their community of people that use their products to post photos and then talk about how they were shot. So I I get I get some in- inspiration from that. Um, I also try not to plan too much going into some of my shoots and just kind of let things in serendipitously happen as far as locations or. It depends on who I'm shooting too. So if I'm working with a dancer, I let whatever poses they want to do kind of dictate where I shoot or what I shoot and I bounce off of them. So then you're you're kind of learning as you go because they're they're, oh, 100%. they're setting the shot up so you're going kind to of force to make that particular shot happen. 100%. Yep. Interesting. Wow. I mean, that's a bit of a risky move. Is have you ever run into <laughs> to situations that ended up being problematic or do you just always make it work? I usually make it work. We, <laughs> <laughs> I run into some issues with security guards that are overzealous. So I mentioned I used the Canon 600 speed lights. I had a problem actually in Vegas during WPPI. We were shooting on a uh, parking garage rooftop. And the there was so much interference with the flashes that they were... I was having dancers like jump and then my flashes weren't firing. But luckily, everybody was patient and it was just like a fun shoot that... 
we kept going and they used it as practice. Um, but that's, that's really the only issues I've ever had. Really? Wow. Well, I mean, kudos yeah. to you for being creative and resourceful. And, and to your earlier point, too, it is great to have at least one community that you can go to get into conversation with about any and everything related to running your business, but also, of course, get some type of education from that group. I mean, I was a part of back before Facebook groups were really a thing. It was, of course, the online forums. And uh, there was mm-hmm. a particular forum that myself and my business partner were a big part of. And there was, I mean, there were the relationships developed as a result of that forum. There certainly was the education or the inspiration. Uh, there was an opportunity to share with others. It was just a really great place to be. And as much as I have ranted here, even on the podcast, about the importance <laughs> of actually connecting with people in person, there's definitely significant value through virtual connection and or via virtual connection. Uh, especially when you're stuck at home and you don't actually have a choice to, to go anywhere. So right. <laughs> anybody listening in, make sure you, you've at least found one group online where there's significant value and the people are positive and helpful, not kissing your butt, to be clear, because that happens too. You see that sometimes in Facebook groups, but people that will not only be kind, but also be willing to give you that honest, constructive criticism. And that's really important. But let's For just sure. jump right into to the topic here because... Um, it's a loaded one. And to be clear, we're just going to kind of cover some basics today, almost like an introduction to off-camera lighting uh, from somebody, by the way, who has a ton of experience. So this is kind of cool. But <laughs> let's just start with where you learned off-camera lighting to begin with. Uh, and it, you know what? Actually, even before we do that, Amanda, we just briefly s- summarize or define really what off-camera lighting is for somebody who's kind of brand new to photography. Um, I mean, in the simplest of terms, off-camera lighting is taking the flash from on your hot shoe on your camera to putting it on a light stand, even if it was right next to you. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. And I love, I love simple. So th- that's a great, simple definition. Um, what that ultimately translates to when it comes to a portrait session, we'll get into in more detail in a second, but how did you go about learning off camera lighting technique? So I, even before just off camera, I started taking photography classes in sixth grade and went through college with it. Wow. Yeah. So I've kind of known this was my path for, a very long time. But off camera specifically, I assisted at studios during like shootouts and workshops. A lot of experimenting. What happens if I do this? Oh, no, that's terrible. Let me move it somewhere else. Kind of kind of thing. So just a combination then of education in school and then experimentation then. Yep, for sure. Yeah. And, and of course, the wonders of digital photography is that you can do so freely and easily. And and I mean, you know, this is I don't want to get too caught up in a tangent, but this is also why <laughs> there is so much competition now, because it's relatively yeah. easy to learn even something seemingly daunting, maybe as off camera lighting, because all you have to do is take some pictures, make adjustments to settings and the position of the camera, or the flash. And you can learn as you go in a relatively short amount of time. And it's immediate versus waiting for it to come back from a dark room or spending hours exactly. in a dark room. Yes, yeah. which, um, <laughs> you know, I certainly don't want to complain. Which I miss completely. But do you? Oh, well, cause <laughs> I, I was going to say, I, I did the same. I went through the same thing because I shot film early in my career. How long did you shoot film? Oh, man. I mean, I graduated high school in 2005 and I graduated college in 2009. Okay. And I would say college is probably where I stopped because that was when I got my first digital was like, or I got it as a high school graduation present was a Canon 20 D. Yep. But since then I really hadn't, hadn't shot film unless it was like a school project. 
Well, that was about uh, 2005 was about the time that that we switched in our business from film to digital or kind of, we're beginning to make the switch anyway. Um, got that first. It was a Nikon D1X actually at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was man that you know, of course, the stories that go <laughs> along with that, like our local lab didn't really know how to print digital files and, and get oh, the skin wow. tones right. And so you had these weird plasticky looking skin tones and uh, it was quite the adventure, shall we say? But but let's keep going to to gear specifically. Your flash, the flash of choice for you. Which one is that? The Canon six hundreds. Okay, and I know that that in recent years, uh, and I've had personal experience with at least one brand as well. Some of these kind of cheaper hundred hundred and fifty dollar flashes that you can buy off Amazon have become really really popular. Do you what are yeah. the advantages that you see in the Canon specific product which is obviously much more expensive over some of these other cheaper solutions that a lot of photographers would say, "Oh no, it's just as good or uh, almost as good." Like what would you what's the comparison and contrast there? Honestly, I just like having consistency. Okay. And I I'm a Canon CPS member, the professional services, so I know um, as a platinum member that if I, anything ever breaks, it's a one day turnaround. Wow. Yeah. So, and I don't obviously with like the other brands, I think I know Godox is super popular and there's one other that I can't think of right now, but those don't have the customer again, customer experience that going directly with the Canon has had for me. Well, and one of the things that I noticed, um, because I had a, I had a set of, I don't think it was Godox. I think it was, and I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but is it Young Yao? It's a, uh, oh, yeah. maybe a Chinese Young brand. Nuo something. Young yeah. Nuo, yeah. Something that's like the that. other one I was thinking of. Yep. Right. So th- the flashes themselves actually worked quite well. Um, they, I know a lot of people that use them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and too. they even have remote functionality, which, which is pretty cool. But the thing that was missing uh, for me from those flashes was the infrared autofocus assist, mm, which okay. when it came time for the reception lighting you know, or a lack of light, yep. shall we say, oh my goodness, it was a nightmare. To, to shoot with those. And I don't know, maybe they make versions uh, from those brands that actually have that autofocus assist. But that was one of the things, major things that was missing because during my career, and I, I say this, um, I shot someone's wedding, I don't know, a couple years ago, a family member's wedding. And I picked up, um, I think, two flashes and photographed that and had kind of a nightmare of experience in that low lighting scenario. When I was shooting full time with an active business, um, I was using Nikon flashes and man, it was so nice. You just, I mean, you could literally hold yeah. the, the camera above your head, you know, with a wide angle lens on and just pop, pop, pop. And you get these really, really cool photos that were tack sharp because of that autofocus assist. So it was really, really great. What would you say are the biggest reasons that the, I mean, aside from consistency though, like on a technical or practical application level, why do you like the Canon camera or Canon uh, flashes rather so much? Um, well, the 600s are radio. Um, I used to have the five eighties, which were, uh, infrared. So those are line of sight. Which if you're, again, I don't do a ton of weddings, but I do some. Um, if you're not directly looking or in back of that flash, they're not going to fire. With radio, they can literally be behind walls and still fire. And just to give context for listeners who, who aren't familiar with, with how these flashes might work, we're talking about the ability for the camera to, connect, to communicate with a flash or vice versa, right? Correct, yeah. So if you move well, that flash off, to flash, yeah, or flash to flash, correct. So if you yeah. move that that camera or the flash off the camera, you need those those lights to be able to communicate with each other. Potentially, even the camera to communicate with the light. And um, so when you're talking about infrared versus radio, that's that's the distinction there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And also size. I like the size of the Canon 600s. I do a decent amount of travel, even within Manhattan, where I 
either have to take an Uber or, or walk. Um, I don't do subways. I'm a bad New Yorker. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I carry four of them with me almost all the time. Wow. Um, and they don't take up much space at all. How are they for battery life? Uh, I use rechargeable batteries okay. by a company called Maha, M-A-H-A. They're power, or, yeah, PowerX batteries. They're phenomenal. <laughs> I I shoot, to go back to the Empire State Building, there I really only use on camera just because of space, but I'm shooting full power for half an hour and I can, I have no problems. No issues. Yeah. I I noticed that with recharging and do you, do you, I will probably get into the technical side of this in a second, but are you shooting those in a manual mode or an automatic mode? Uh, Mostly manual. Manual. Yeah. So I, I, similarly, I noticed using the combination of a manual setting with rechargeable batteries uh, we could shoot in, in some cases for a whole reception with just one set of batteries on one of these off-camera oh, yeah, Nikon's. It was amazing. Easily, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I'd love portability, simplicity, especially when you're traveling, you're moving around quite a bit. So that's really encouraging to know. And uh, we'll we'll link to some on Amazon. Uh, Haley will put those in the show notes at bocapodcast.com. By the way, if anybody listening in, um, not only do we have show notes at bocapodcast.com, but this Haley's put together really great kind of uh, package of resources there because now we have something like 350 episodes on air. There's a lot of content. She makes it a little bit easier to be able to sort through all that. So take advantage for sure. The show notes will have the resources and links from today in the show notes at bocapodcast.com. But um, let's let's get into the technical side of things. And, and I want to make it easy for, particularly for somebody who's not either spent a lot of time with off-camera lighting or has never um, attempted any kind of OCF uh, for short, I want to make it easy for them to get started. So you you and I chatted actually before we started recording. You shared, we ultimately had five different kind of main points that we want to hit here. The first thing that you mentioned to me was the significance of knowing the equipment. Now, that might seem obvious to some listening in, but I remember specifically shooting, I mean, I shot with a Nikon camera or cameras over the years, and I got to know that equipment so well that, I mean, I can even, if I close my eyes, even... I can I can feel that camera in my hand right now, even though I don't have one anymore, uh, because I knew it so well. You become so intimately acquainted with the the functionality, the layout of that machine that you can almost For use sure. it in your sleep. Uh, so that's kind of what I what I liken to this notion of knowing the equipment. How first of all, how long did it take you to become familiar with the, that Canon flash, and and what did that process look like? I mean, I'm still learning things about it. Are you? Okay, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Yeah, I've had them, I want to say like five years now, I think. I know they've they've put out a new version. They put out the 600, like our EXR2 or something like that. Okay. Um, but I still have the, the the main, like the first initial version of it. Um, and honestly, haven't found any reason to upgrade. It's, uh, I mean, I started off with ETTL, which is electronic through the lens um, and letting the camera choose my settings for me. Okay. Especially in receptions. Sometimes I'll still do that. But that's not how I didn't learn anything from that. And I think photographers are inherently curious. So I or artists in general are inherently curious and risk takers to some extent. So I would I take it to manual when I felt safe enough or when I wasn't on a client's budget and I was just doing my own thing to to learn what half power versus full power looked like or even going down lower or just trying, trying things out there. So with ETTL, were you simultaneously setting the camera on like an aperture priority or program or, or, 
were you putting that on manual? What what did the camera setup look like in conjunction? My camera my camera is manual, a hundred percent. I have had zero luck on aperture priority. <laughs> okay, I don't fair. know if it's me. I'm a natural blonde. I don't know if it's me. I don't know if it's the camera, but I've had I've never had luck on aperture priority. Oh no! I mean, the fact that you're going <laughs> with full manual would suggest that your your intelligence is actually quite high. I mean, to be able to do that on the fly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, to make the adjustments as you need it, quickly check settings uh, or the result that you're getting, make an adjustment and keep going. I mean, that's that takes more thought and effort than just putting it in <laughs> aperture priority. So props to you for that. Um, but just to give context to to our listeners, though, so with ETTL, you've got you still had your your camera on manual setting. You've Correct. got the the flash doing the work for you. At what point did you begin to transition away from that and start to use the manual settings? When I got bored. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. So are you experimenting uh, <laughs> like outside of a job or on, on site at a job? I've, I'll say I've done both, but I don't recommend doing it on a job. Sure. I mean, receptions are four to five hours long. And if you have a really good dancing crowd, you can get what you need in the first hour and just get all the safe shots and then start to experiment. You don't necessarily have to show your client what you experiment as long as you have the shots, enough shots to make an album look good or make them look good. But that's also, I love working with, I mentioned to you, I don't know if I mentioned it already on this, but I mentioned, I love working with dancers. Dancers are creative. They kind of force you to not to use Apple's slogan, but think differently than maybe you, uh, you would look at a situation otherwise. And just having other uh, photographer friends to bounce ideas off of too helps. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to find inspiration, I guess, just by, I mean, you can start in the Facebook groups like we were talking about earlier. You can go to Instagram, um, look at other photographers' work. I mean, Instagram is all inspiration for the most part. Look up at certain hashtags. Even if you did hashtag like OCF, I'm sure things would come up. Oh, yeah, I bet. I bet. And then then figuring out, taking the time to actually figure out, okay, I love this image. I love what's going on here. I'm going to try to figure out how to make that work. If need be, you can DM the the photographer. But otherwise, experimenting a little bit, taking the time to experiment really makes a difference. I mean, watching a YouTube video, yeah, okay. Reading a book, sure, maybe a little bit. But actually, hands-on, setting the lights up and taking the time to, to practice is just, I mean, it can't, again, it might seem obvious, but I don't think the photographers do it enough. They, they get so caught up, especially after they start shooting, just going from one shoot to the next and not really doing a whole lot in between. I think it's, it's a great recommendation suggestion that we all put some type of practice in, uh, myself sure. included. And in it. As I say, you hear so many professional photographers, they don't shoot for free. And I hate that. Like I am so against that. Hmm. I shoot for free all the time because that's how I learn. I wouldn't have gotten my gig with the Empire State Building if I didn't shoot for free because I did two events for social media for somebody else that got me up there before they started asking me my rates. And it's networking. I know you, you're you big on networking as well. Um, I'm huge on networking. And it's a lot of it is who you know. It's really true. Uh, and, and I mean, to your point about being willing to shoot for free, you got to set your ego aside and, and look at it as an for opportunity sure. versus you know, this notion that it's going to somehow devalue your brand, that you occasionally do something for the sake of practice or just adding value to somebody else's life or another business. Um, it's going to come back in a positive way at some point. You just have to, to trust that. So 100%. we'll start by suggesting that those listening in, I mean, if, if you're new <laughs> to off-camera flash, make sure that you have a good feel for the equipment. And as basic as it might sound, a lot of that just comes from practice, using it, practicing, seeing the results, making adjustments, keep going. Start yeah, by never, never show up to a, a paid gig with new equipment. It's just oh. a recipe for you to fail. Yes, 
for sure. <laughs> Start by knowing your equipment. The second thing that you mentioned to me um, was the importance of knowing where the secondary light source is. So now we're going to start getting a little bit technical for anybody that's new to off-camera lighting. Um, can you explain to our listeners what this means? So for me, the secondary light source is the sun. Um, or if I'm shooting at night, it's lights from a business or it's, it's anything that's not my flash. <laughs> okay. So I tend to break all the rules per se and put the sun directly behind my subject where I'm shooting into it, which my camera doesn't always like to focus, but it also creates a nice rim light without me having to set up multiple flashes. I'm very simple and I like one flash and I, especially in New York city, you don't have the space or necessarily the time to set up two, three, four flashes on location. So the secondary light source is usually the sun for me. Okay. And then are your, I mean, I'm, as I'm scrolling through your Instagram account here, I'm not seeing a lot with uh, sun flare, for example, in it. Are you shooting directly into the sun? Are you putting that sun at a, a particular degree angle? How are you placing it or how are you setting your subject, I guess, in, in regards to where the sun is? There's no one way, uh, <laughs> which kind of makes sense or not a little complicated. It, it really depends on time of day and the effect that I want. I don't get a lot of sun flare and I think maybe because the flash kills it, but I, you can also, I don't know, you can change your angle. So if I'm down shooting up towards the sun, you're probably going to get more sun flare than shooting straight and where the sun's coming down onto the subject, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, ultimately we can, we can make adjustments as necessary, right? If you see that, yeah. that, that sun or that flare coming in, but you're saying that as far as where you normally place uh, that so-called secondary light, the sun or, or lights coming off a building, it's just going to vary depending on the situation, the subject that you're working with. Yeah, correct. Okay. But you're ultimately using those as a way to create a little bit of separation from the background, a rim light, if, as you mentioned earlier. I love using, especially at sunset when I used to photograph engagement sessions or even the couples at the weddings, um, having that beautiful, soft, warm rim light uh, is, is really, really nice. But is that kind of the purpose of that is to create the separation, a little bit of depth in the image? Yep, exactly. Um, I tend to shoot everything wide open or with a very fast aperture. Okay. So all of my lenses are 2.8 or faster. Obviously, if it's a group of eight, I'm not going to shoot at 2.8. But uh, most of the time, if it's one or two people, I'm I'm at one two, one four, somewhere around there to also create the separation. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that that additional effect is really nice. In fact, I'm actually looking at a picture here. This is an image that you posted back. Oh, wow. It's been uh, best a year and three months or four months ago, December 22nd, 2018. I, I scrolled down a little ways. You but, scrolled way far. <laughs> um, but this is a couple standing in front of, uh, he's actually kind of dipping her. And there's some, what looks like Christmas lights in the background. And you've created a separation, quite a bit of separation with that shallow depth of field, which is really nice. But those lights also, it looks like, act as a little bit of a rim light. Uh, so it, it played beautifully both ways. That's really is cool. Is she in a red skirt? She is, yeah. Okay, yeah, I know which image you're talking about. So that is on the street. Uh, I want to say it's like 55th Street in Manhattan. Um, but every holiday time, every December, November, they just throw random lights up. So it's like this kind of really cool, unorganized but organized look to it. So part of that separation, too, is the lens that I was using. I was using the 70 to 200. Okay. So that without getting super technical, compresses the background to look like it's closer than it is to the right. subject. Right. And then there's also lights from cars that are behind them, which is my secondary light. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, that's yeah. You you kind of have almost like a tertiary light too. You've got the the light from the car, and then you have those lights in the background, and then of course you've got your main light, which is a good segue to the third point, which is uh, the positioning of the main light. You've got to position the secondary light, uh, and I put position in air quotes there. Uh, sometimes yeah. you can't actually control it, so you have to shift accordingly. But then positioning the main light, what is what does that look like for you? Are you always trying to create um, a certain direction at, at an angle? across your subject? Are you sometimes just front lighting them? Does it vary? What does that process look like? So this is going to sound kind of ironic, but I hate images that look like flash, (laughs) if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. I don't like that direct flash kind of look. So I'm always trying to soften it, um, create that more like dynamic um, portrait or or look to it. Uh, So if it's two people, if it's a couple, the light is always to flatter the female. (laughs) If it's a same-sex couple, you just have to do your best, best for whoever, for both of them. But if it's a bride and groom, you're, I always focus on the bride. <laughs> Make well, the bride look good. And, and that picture that, that we were referencing from yeah. uh, December 22nd, 2018, we'll, we'll try to link to this in the show notes for, for reference for anybody listening in. But um, you definitely soften the light there. I mean, the balance between the foreground light and the background light is, is quite lovely. Thank you. So that I, uh, it was one flash. I think my light stand is eight feet tall. So it was all the way up. Um, and with the magma sphere. So it did have a, a softening like dome to it. Okay. And we're going to talk a little bit about modifiers here in just a little bit, but I can also see that the, the shadow from the couple is being cast. I mean, me looking at them to the back and left of them. So you can tell that you're actually shooting across a little bit of angle, a little bit of direction, uh, yep, to the light. Do you, do you tend to do that? Okay. Always. Yeah. Never, never straight on always at an angle and down. And you mentioned it being at eight feet. Do you usually bump that light up higher than the subject? And what's the thought process behind that? Yeah. Higher and, and then aimed down towards them. I've just found it's the most flattering. It doesn't create weird shadows on noses if it's the same level um, and at an angle which of course you can do if you want to be more dramatic, but it's just, it just seems to spread it out and be the most flattering. Well, closely tied to, and, and we're going to keep referencing this image because I think it's a good reference image, but <laughs> closely tied to the position of the main light then is, is also the position of the subject. They can almost go hand in hand. We might even prioritize one or the other, but um, positioning the subject in reference to the light, you've already kind of alluded to this, but do you have anything that you want to add uh, for the sake of conversation? I mean, especially looking at that one image of the couple, the, the woman with the red skirt. Don't play in traffic unless you know what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) So don't do what's in that picture. (laughs) Um, So in this case, it's a one-way street and I am facing the oncoming traffic, which is if you're going to go into a street and it's one way, make sure that you as a photographer are watching because you don't want your couple to have that in the back of their mind while they're posing to also be aware of like, stop, there's a car coming. Yeah. Um, So that's all in my control as well. And but from a technical standpoint, though, I mean, is there is there something that our listeners, especially if they're new to using lights off camera, is there something that they can should, can, should consider technically uh, when it comes to positioning the subject as it relates to where the light is? I always recommend high aim down. So it's as high as your light stand can go uh, and then aim towards the couple or a person. But just not going too high, because if you go too high, you mentioned earlier, it can cast some kind of weird shadows on the nose. So this is not going a whole lot higher than their natural height, correct? No, I'd say it's about a two feet higher. Okay. And then back, back, back about five or six feet. 
Very cool. I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, to kind of pull different ideas and points and suggestions out of this, but I think one of the wonderful things about this conversation, especially the way that you are implementing it and what we're presenting here, ultimately, it's actually quite simple as, uh, as an idea. You need to get out, for those of you listening, you need to get out and practice um, yeah. with these, these very simple ideas. But at the end, they're not overly complicated. So I, I know that there have been some photographers that have avoided, at least for a time anyway, and maybe still are avoiding uh, experimenting with off-camera lights because they're intimidated, intimidated by the idea. But the reality is the basic principles aren't overly complicated to implement. You do have a digital camera with a screen that's going to immediately tell you whether or not it worked. And you can make adjustments and experiment. Uh, it wouldn't hurt to call one of your clients up and say, hey, uh, I, I want to put together this shoot. No cost to you. Would you be willing? And then you experiment with that. And you know, tell them it's going to take a couple hours and you're going to set up a variety of shots. They're going to get some free pictures from it. And you get some great. That's practice. exactly what I did with this couple. So she is a New York Jets cheerleader. Oh, cool! And had just gotten engaged. So I was like, "Is your new fiance down to to shoot? Here's the street. Here's what it looks like. I have no idea what is actually going to look good, but yeah, I can promise you're going to get at least like five pictures that you're going to like." <laughs> Brilliant. Well, there you go. I, I'm loving this picture even more. We're just going to use it for everything. <laughs> Um, just in closing, though, you alluded earlier to modifiers, especially in the yeah. context of softening the image. You also alluded to MagMod. I know that you're a, a fan. Talk to us about what modifiers and gels you're using and, and how our listeners can begin to do the same. So gels, if you're just starting out, I don't, wouldn't focus on because um, those can get overly complicated. But if you're I, – I love the um, – my main my main modifier is a mag sphere, the mag mud sphere. It's just easy. It's magnets. It folds. It bends. It can crush it into my camera bag, and it'll still retain shape when I pull it out. <laughs> and it just it's small. It it's a great light source. It just softens everything. The other one I use is there when I have more time or space is the their mat their um, soft box, the mag box. Okay. It's like a thirty second installation. Wow. And if you're like me and hate the sound of Velcro or in churches and you can't have Velcro, um, the, <laughs> True. The, the magnets are just satisfying. You're so <laughs> right, though. That's, yeah, no, it's funny that you say that because I, I used to use a, a modifier I was a huge fan of, actually, that did go on with Velcro. And man, yeah, it's the worst. it is the worst for sure. <laughs> like nails on a chalkboard. Yeah, that's another tangent. Um, but they also have a... Uh, Get what they call it, but it's uh, it goes on your light stand and it holds two flashes. Okay, which I now use often because if I'm shooting into the sun, I need to overpower the sun. And while one flash at full power um, can do that, two flashes at half power will recycle faster. Sure, and get the same effect. And so I miss less and use less battery, like we were talking earlier. So I'm I'm looking here at, at products really quick from Magmod. Is it the Mad Magmod Mag Ring Speed Ring? Ma yes, I believe it is. That holds the two flashes. Okay. Yeah. Um, if not, either way, what we'll do is make sure to link to that in the show yeah. notes, uh, just for everybody in case it comes. You're it comes with the softbox, um, so that's how I got it. But I, you can use it without any modifier as well. Yeah, I, I think that's it. So you got that mag mag box, and then the ring is a mounting system for mag ring, yeah. for the box, and you can put two flashes in there. Wow, yep. huh? 
Okay. Well, nonetheless, we'll make sure that we have the, <laughs> the, the right products linked to in the show notes. And shout out to Magma. This is definitely not a sponsored uh, episode, but no, but uh, now they should. Maybe they should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's hilarious. Um, just really quick in closing, though, you, you said gels is not a great place to go when you're first getting started. Can you just share briefly how you might use them now or, or if you do and what the benefit of them is? I don't use a ton, um, but when I do, it's more color corrective. So I will use like a blue gel on my flash if I want to warm up an image. So basically it's doing the opposite. You use the warmer, like the CTO, the color temperature orange gels to make an image cooler. And it's just to match other light sources around. So if you're, if you're, I shoot a lot on like cloudy days or like bright sunny days, there's really no in between. So if it's a cloudy day, I'll probably want to warm up the image a bit. And if I use the blue gel, it'll help me, help me do that. And then the other way they do, if you use colors, get creative, put it in the background. If you want to change a red brick wall to being purple or green, that would take an extra flash that you can put it on and then just aim that at the wall and change, change the whole dynamic of the picture, essentially. Yeah, Yeah, start getting a little bit creative, a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I like crazy. No, that's that's really good. That's really good. Well, I, I really appreciate you sharing just kind of an introduction to, to off-camera flash and, and ultimately, I mean, uh, an implementation of the technique that could be used for the foreseeable future for a photographer too. It doesn't have to be complicated. That's one of the things I no. love about life is, um, and I find quite hilarious at times, is how complicated that we as human beings tend to make things when in many cases, it's, so it's just not necessary. Uh, this has been a really great introduction to a simple way to approach off-camera light. And uh, for anybody who is curious, can you just remind them, if they want to follow what you're doing, maybe even send a question or two your way, where can they find you online, your website, and uh, Instagram again? All of my social media and website are the same. It's Fire the Canon. Canon spelled like the camera, C-I-N-O-N. Perfect. And we'll link to those. Again, simple. Yeah, that's the way to go. Show notes, bocapodcast.com. Thanks once again, Amanda, for hanging out with us today. Absolutely. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Boca Podcast. Will you let us know what you thought by leaving a review of the podcast in the Apple Podcast app? And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast and suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My email is Nathan at photographersedit.com. The Boca Podcast is brought to you by Milu, the simplest way for photographers and coordinators to collaborate on shot lists and timelines for weddings, parties, and other amazing events. Visit Milu, M-I-I-L-U.com. This podcast is also brought to you by Photographer's Edit, custom image editing for the professional photographer. Visit photographersedit.com.